as many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week. That sparked a national debate about the role of the military in civil society. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from, and I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. Today is day 102, dealing with the COVID crisis, and it is day 17 since we've been dealing with the situation of civil unrest after Mr. Floyd's murder. These are two very different situations. They actually intersect and they complicate one another. This is a perfect time for us to move those statues. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. It is a hot day up here in upstate New York where I fled like a coward after the apex of COVID-19 in Brooklyn. I don't know exactly what I was adding to the mix in New York City, except my own potential to be pathogenic and ill-advisedly opinionated, but it still seems important to stay in your city when it's embattled, first by the virus, now by the police violence in response to the Floyd protests. But my kids asked to be able to go outside without masks, and a friend's house opened up, and so we're here, and there's a creek and a cat and a sit-down mower, and it's pretty great, and I feel really relaxed, but I'm defensive about it, I have to admit. Aside from all the police brutality, the other response to the Floyd protests that has upset what's left of the non-upset apple cart and said all the apples, all bad apples, rolling across America like massive bowling balls, did that even work, are the firings, suspensions, and resignations of people practicing racism or those adjacent to racism, including four prominent editors in the media, the founder and CEO of CrossFit, that brutal workout regime, dozens of cops caught in the act of violence or brutality, or of course, George Floyd's murder, a FedEx worker who staged a kind of Abu Ghraib tableau to celebrate that murder in southern New Jersey, and a financial worker who called the police on a black birder claiming he was trying to kill her. Those firings, together with the biggest and most consequential global protests in world history and the chronicle of the brutality continue to make me think that America might make it out alive, out from under this merciless Trump regime that has made us question all the ideas we thought America was built on, including, of course, the self-evident idea that all men are created equal. Here to discuss racism, the protests, and how to read the rapidly proliferating videos of violence is Elliot Williams. Elliot is a CNN legal analyst and Obama appointee at the DOJ, DHS, and Senate Judiciary Committee. Elliot, welcome back to Trumpcast. Oh my goodness, it's so great to be back. It's like you never call, you never write. (laughs) I tweet, I tweet. So right before the murder of George Floyd, This Cooper versus Cooper showdown in Central Park happened, and I'm on the fence about whether we should keep talking about this, but you really brilliantly made the case on CNN that this is really significant to talking even about the murder of George Floyd and the protests, even about the talking about systemic racism, talking about a lot of the fallout from the protests, including the resignation or firing of people in the media, of the head of CrossFit, of, you know, suspicions about health services. This is 
It's a reckoning. It's a reckoning like the Me Too reckoning. And it's so extensive that, in fact, revisiting the Cooper versus Cooper showdown, and I'm talking about the one where the white woman in, in Central Park moved to racist hysteria when confronted with a black birder, that is very illuminating. These, these like street encounters presage are on a continuum, even with the murder of George Floyd. So everything is on a continuum with the murder of George Floyd. You know, it, it's fascinating because we're having this important and long overdue, um, frankly, surprise. as a black person, I find it truly surprising that we are, but here we are, conversation about, about policing and police and are police racist and do police hold implicit biases. But really, you know, Every, you know, the police are just a symptom and not the problem, right? The police happen to be armed. And when they engage in the implicit biases, um, people die or people are uh, severely injured. Remember, you never hear about the people who are hurt by police, injured by police, but not killed. But that's just one symptom. And I think the Amy Cooper uh, episode, with re- which really kicked off, uh, you know, racism month in America, uh, <laughs> the Amy Cooper episode is really instructive. And, and my piece in CNN, for, and literally it was right, I think the day, the, you know, I, I don't even think I was aware of the, the, the Minneapolis story at the time I wrote it. It was really all happening at the same time. It was really just a conversation about how white people apologize for racism. And it's titled, the Amy Cooper and the I'm not racist defense. And it really resonated with a lot of people because what struck me is that the first words out of her mouth after she did something unquestionably racist was to say, I'm not racist, mm-hmm. right? And I think what we are all and what I hope America, where I hope America is getting, where it seems like many white people are getting now is this recognition finally that racism isn't just a personality flaw or a personality trait, but a behavior and a set of behaviors that even good people are capable of engaging in. What I was really interested in in your piece, and this is sort of in light of, yes, Amy Cooper's balking at, at having to consider herself guilty of the original sin of racism, and also, you know, other apologies saying I'm not a racist, is that this weird thing where racist actions are one thing and we know they're bad. But now calling someone a racist is its own affront. So one of the things in your article was that someone said calling someone a racist is kind of the worst thing you can do to them. Um, yeah. I think George Floyd would have disagreed. But, I think even. <laughs> yeah, but, sorry, uh, I'm chuckling. But yeah. No, 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 not at all. But one idea I have, I'm going to run this past you, is that maybe if we're going to talk about systemic racism, is it possible that being a racist and doing racist things should be shrunk a little bit in its shockingness so that everybody is an everyday racist. Uh, if it's systemic, it's like patriarchy. If it's systemic, then we're all participating in patriarchy all the time. And if white supremacy is systemic, we're all participating in it all the time. So make allowing for racism, the wide, the pervasiveness of racism and making it less costly to confess to might be a way of acknowledging how systemic, how systematic the changes need to be. Hey, remember this one? I'm a little bit racist. You're a little bit too. (laughs) Everyone's a little bit racist. Admitting it is not an easy thing to do. The song from Avenue Q, that everyone's a little bit racist sometimes, yeah. doesn't mean you go out committing hate crimes is how the song goes. You know, it, it's yeah. really fascinating because I find a few things in this whole what is 
quote unquote racist, right? And somewhere along the line, and I bet there's a historian who could come on and explain when the term racist got weaponized. Now, certainly it was by white people and it was um, this fragility that uh, made being called a racist the greatest. And now the person you were talking about was Governor Paul LePage of Maine. That, you know, he's a nutcase, if you remember, former Governor Paul LePage. And a, rep- a white reporter had done some things, you know, alluding to the racism of Governor LePage, who, you know, who said some crazy stuff like, you know, about black guys coming into town and impregnating white New Hampshire girls or something like that. Comments that were unquestionably racist. And he leaves this t- this obscenity-laden tirade on the guy's voicemail saying, you called me the single worst thing that someone can ever be called. Look, I personally have been called a nigger many, many times by white people, right? Don't tell me, Governor LePage, that being called a racist is something, you know, and I think John Mulaney, the comedian, actually has a really good line about this. When you're having a conversation about the N-word, and you literally can't say the word, Mm. chances are it's probably the worst word you can say. And so the idea that somehow white people are so fragile that being called racist is the most offensive thing is just preposterous. But again, this is sort of one of the notions that black people are made to to internalize throughout our entire lives, that, you know, whatever you do, you got to be careful about when and how you accuse white people of racism or racist behavior, because it's just going to land really, really poorly. Um, you know, I remember throughout, like, you know, I'm, I haven't really faced direct sort of name calling or anything as a grown up all the time as a kid, sort of um, bluish slash light, light blue to white collar New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was always, um, what would that be like? Periwinkle, New Jersey. Yes, Periwinkle, um, New Jersey. I like yeah. it. Right, exactly. Um, sort of a, a gentle aquamarine was the shape of but the collar. But is it is it cargo but, short collar? Is it the, the, um, exactly? Okay, exactly. Yeah. You know, you had, you know, everybody's dad was like the foreman at the factory. Got right? it. Yep. So you know, there it's ever whenever you would confront a kid's parents or a kid's family about something you know, blatantly racist they'd done or said at school, it was all oh, you know, you know, we're just not that way. He's not that way. As you didn't know any better. Um, and it's just amazing that this is the one type of behavior that, you know, I feel like we as humans, we as Americans can always agree to, I was clumsy, I was sloppy, I was stupid, I was sexist. I bet there are many men who would acknowledge their own, I, you know, I just don't agree that like, women would acknowledge that they don't agree with women or whatever. But I just don't think any, very few white people in America can say, I am racist. I did racist things. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, I was hearing someone go through the seven deadly sins. It, it's actually a parenting thing, but that the seven deadly sins are a good thing to teach your t- teenagers not to do because they're so structured and confining. And it's first to acknowledge that everyone has a propensity to greed and lust and pride and so forth. And second mm-hmm. to say, just just as a kind of rough r- set of rules, try to avoid those particular things. Later, we can sort of decide if self-esteem is on a continuum with pride. But for now, you know, no arrogance and so on. And racism seems to combine some a bunch of traditional sins, including bearing false witness is one of them, which we saw in Cooper versus Cooper. That is, you know, up there as against the the uh, the Ten Commandments. It's particularly interesting to see these instances of witness against uh, against black people that, you know, frame black people as criminal. 
And I, I guess I want to talk particularly about, well, about where Amy Cooper's thinking has sort of suffused, because she calls the police, she calls armed forces, she puts Christian Cooper in grave danger. And then we see, for good and bad reasons, the owners of a convenience store in Minneapolis call the police on someone who they say gave a very obvious $20, $20 counterfeit bill. So all of a sudden, you have all these guns pointed at the head of either a birder, if Amy Cooper had gotten her way, or a, you know, average Joe passing, maybe passing a bad 20, neither of which should be capital crimes. And there, there is something about the jump to this thing is we need lethal force. These people are already criminal before they do anything. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I think first point is that as a general, and let me let me get back into prosecutor, former prosecutor for a moment. You know, the, the most powerful thing that we've learned over the course of this month, uh, racism month in America, um, which, you know, which I hope becomes racism year in America because we need to keep talking about, you know, the power of the cell phone and the power of the cell phone camera. You know, um, one person I saw said, you know, some, you know, self-consciously pithy, brilliant tweet had said, you know, the cell phone is the greatest, the cell phone camera is the greatest sort of um, threat to individual liberty, but the greatest um, asset or tool to civil rights uh, that we've seen because, and and, you know, you kind of see that, right? Like, you know, the sort of this, um, you know, I'm not, it's, I'm not a privacy quote unquote person, but you know, the surveillance state does exist now in a way that it didn't 10 or 20 years ago. And the cell phone cameras certainly add to that, but just think about, um, George Floyd. And okay, let's use another example too. The um, Buffalo protester. Yeah. Uh, uh, the individual who was uh, pushed, and I will say pushed by the police officer and fell down and hit his head uh, and his you know, brain damage now and so on. Without a cell phone video, that is a man who tripped in the custody or in the presence of police mm-hmm. and was helped by police and happens to be brain damaged now. With the cell phone video, this is a 75 year old man who was not harming anybody, mm-hmm. who was pushed by officers who did not come to his aid and as a result, consequently, consequently, um, you know, is, is now, you know, the outcome is the same. He's still brain damaged. Yeah. He's still in the hospital in the ICU or whatever, but the way the police have characterized it is vastly different based on the fact it was a cell phone video yes. without a cell phone video. Um, Mr. Cooper, Christian Cooper, you know, is a black man, um, in an altercation with a white woman, the police would have still shown up. He might've been gone by then. Cause mm-hmm. if you remember, he walks away before the end of the scene, but you know, police come to, with the, to the cries of a white woman and a beautiful cocker spaniel. Uh, and there's a black man threatening me in central park, George Floyd without a cell phone camera is a man who resisted arrest and, you know, had a heart attack in the, in, in the custody of, of the police or whatever. So, you know, I, I say this as former prosecutor, just because everything, you know, as an evidentiary matter, Almost we as the jury in the world forget, you know, courts now are able to see evidence or facts or recountings of things that many of us knew to be true all along, but could easily be explained away by authority or frankly, by white people like Amy Cooper's narrative would have been the final story. Yeah, you can see that you can see the New York Post headline. You can see her on it in tears. I mean, you know, had it not had it not been for the video. Uh, and I continue to think that I don't know much about the 17-year-old who did beautiful camera work showing the murder of George Floyd. You know, here we have the Zapruder video. 
of the George Floyd case, without which, as you say, the whole event would be framed in, like, if I may retreat to graduate school language, in hegemonic language using evidence provided by the corrupt coroner, for instance, who went immediately to saying that this was a heart attack and had nothing to do with asphyxiation or the knee on on, uh, on George Floyd's throat that throttled him. Um, and uh, and then the other cops who would quickly have testified that, you know, there was no foul play here. And we would that would have been evidence itself, right? I mean, we would have seen that would have been the evidence and that would have been how we evaluated it. And George Floyd's running buddies would not have been credible. And it could have been pretty open and shut. And I was even thinking, what are we? We're something like 17 days after Floyd's murder. Can you imagine, you know, Derek Chauvin might today have forgotten that he just murdered someone? Yes. No, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, and the, again, getting back to law enforcement and uh, narrative and how we talk about things after they happen, you know, there is an illegal explanation. There is a plot, and frankly, to racism too, there's a plausible, neutral, short of shooting someone with a fire hose and sicking dogs at them and calling them uh, vile ethnic slurs. There's generally a neutral explanation to anything. And particularly in law enforcement, there can always be a sort of plausible explanation for why something happened when it's not recorded. Let me give you an example just from the world of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Searches and seizures, um, when officers, and I I, I remember seeing this as prosecutors, there's always, the law allows for, uh, you know, I was just suspecting that he was carrying drugs for pretty much basically anything, right? And this is written in the blog. This isn't, you know, it's not that cops are bad or anything like that on this issue. But for instance, you know, we we walked up for, you know, with consent to approach someone at the airport and he looked exceptionally calm. And the calm seemed to um, seem sort of unsettling or unreasonable. So, you know, we just want to ask him some more questions. Conversely, they can also say, we walked up to this guy and, you know, his eyes were darting around and he really looked uneasy and a little bit weird. And that provided a basis for asking him some more questions. Oh, my goodness, we found a dime bag of, uh, uh, in his pocket and a, and, a, and a couple bricks in a scale. So it's just you can always when it comes to um, justifying your basis for uh, a police action, you know, there's very few circumstances on which you can't explain it. And again, the simple one in the George Floyd case would have been he was resisting arrest. Mm-hmm. He was just. You know, he was put, you know, we told him to stop resisting and, oh my goodness, he was, he was overweight and he just happened to have a heart attack. My goodness, you know, it's an unspeakable tragedy, but, you know, it's it's just how it happened. Pre-existing conditions. Pre-existing conditions. Ellie Mistel, whom I know you know well, um, you know, Ellie made the point that, you know, there's no, if, if I jump through the Zoom call you and I are having right now because we're socially distanced and punch you, right? And you punch me back. You know, one of us can sue one of us for assault or whatever. And that's just the legal framework of how the world works. Like, you know, you consume it. You can't, if an, if an officer just punches you, there's no legal framework for, you know, you've got to establish that he wasn't threatened and this and that and all kinds of stuff. But, but you know, for the most part, we just don't exist in a world where the actions of officers are checked. Now, to some extent, to some extent, that's okay. To some extent. And I want to be clear, like, again, you know, you don't want the officer who goes and fishes a little kid out of a well to be sued for battery for mm-hmm. touching someone. Mm-hmm. But but at the end of the day, you know, I think we've reached a point where we just can't hold officers accountable for engaging in conduct 
as in George Floyd. Well, That's part of this is the is the qualified immunity clause, right? That that yeah. I, that it looks like this bill that the Congressional Black Congress has advanced and has, I think, uh, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris's name on it. That addresses some of these questions about civil lawsuits against police officers and makes them makes it easier to file or makes it so that they're not universally immune to cases like that. Yeah, I mean, so qualified immunity is this doctrine that in civil rights suits against police officers, if you can establish that their action exceeded the bounds of law, you know, I don't want to get too lawyerly or in the weeds here, but, um, you know, you can see the problem is that um, you, you, you pretty much need to find a fact pattern where another police officer was in the same situation and was held sort of responsible. Yep. Right. So in this case, you know, to, to really succeed in a civil rights suit, you would have had to have found that, you know, under Minnesota law or in the federal circuit that covers Minnesota, another officer had tried to use a chokehold uh, or the knee on the neck in the same manner as George Floyd and the person died and there was a lawsuit and that person won. The problem is that, number one, the law is so tough that so few people win. So it's just, you know, it's almost impossible to find parallel circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it's just... You know, it, again, using the example of the, the officer who fishes the kid out of the well, you know, you want officers to be able to engage in some action. Do police uh, ever but, do that anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, hey, I'm, I intend to live in Mayberry one day. <laughs> one day. We can all fantasize. We can all live in a world where some white man in like a, in like a jumper and like one of those page boy hats delivers milk on my porch each day. Absolutely. Like here for it. But until we live in that day, you know, we got to face with the reality. I want to ask you about the various videos, starting with the Cooper versus Kirk Cooper video, the George Floyd video, and then the Buffalo Man video. I should say that you probably know this, but a, a group of activists, a couple of activists, one mathematician, interestingly, and a lawyer, have put together a spreadsheet available on Google of all the instances, uh, all the clips of police brutality since May 26th, so since the death of George Floyd. And it's one of those things like school shootings. I mean, do you have any guesses about how many there are? Do I? Yeah. Nationwide? Uh, Including yeah. England. I'd say 200. 643 as of what? yesterday. Videos. What? So as you say, our camera videos, camera phones are just an enormous resource in documenting police brutality. It, I, I, I was astonished by this list. You know, it's interesting, Virginia. You know, you, you, you talked about the officer fishing the kid out of the, the well in Mayberry and so on. And, you know, and I say that to be cute and glib, but, um, you know, you know, a bigger point, and this gets back to this legislation that you're talking about and where we are in the world. It's think about what we ask of police officers. Now, I'll, I'll even, you know, let's be empathetic for a moment. Um, we have now as a society for generations made police officers the sort of judge, jury, um, social workers, um, public safety people. Um, and for whatever reason, we just accept that the people who you know, respond to domestic assaults in homes, the mm -hmm. people who respond to homeless men urinating on the street, um, who might be mentally ill and drunk or whatever, the people who respond to um, lawful, peaceful protests, the people who respond to you know, the kid in the well are all these heavily armed individuals. Um, we have created a scheme in which the police are actually social, or, you know, frankly, policing schools, which um, there's, you know, uh, again, when you have 
when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have a Glock taped to your leg, every nine-year-old black kid looks like a monster and a yes. threat, right? And so, um, you know, and that's kind of where we are today. And so this whole, these questions about defund, deprioritize, whatever that means, there's something real there. And it stems and flows from the fact that we've created a police state in which police engage in protected activities that they probably don't have any basis in or don't have any training in, mm-hmm. uh, other than someone at the academy teaching you how to deal with a husband and wife who are really having marital trouble. It occurred to me that, you know, this, the, the effort to, it, you know, if we accept the FBI's findings now from 15 years ago that white supremacists had infiltrated and were recruiting from police departments, part that the, the two things, the authoritarianism of police departments, militarization of police departments, has grown in sync with the presence of people drawn to them for that very reason. And that the solution, at least some people have proposed, is shrink the power of the police so that you and make it like slightly less exciting. And slightly less, uh, you know, there are fewer opportunities to subjugate your fellow humans, both taking the chokehold off the table, but disarming many, many or, you know, the police, um, bringing them down to making fewer of them armed. Also, just there were things like I was sort of thinking about this this yesterday. You know, what about six months of Spanish training where they have to pass a test at the end? Just those things that put a break on the zeal of white supremacists. It's just not actually quite that interesting if you're studying a lot of anthropology for a year. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this wonderful, the Mormon mother of six, one of my favorite tweeters. She writes about abortion, but recently she wrote about guns. And she said, you know, like Alex Jones and others will say, they'll do anything to protect their family. You know, someone coming in to rape their children, they, the lives of their children come first for them. And she said, first, why are you thinking about people raping your children? And second, you know what? The best thing you can do, and that sounds, that's a real commitment, is really do the laundry well. Because it is amazing (laughs) how many viruses kids can get with unclean clothes. And you also have to bathe them a lot, you know? Work on dental hygiene. You want to protect your kids? That's great. And that's how I feel right now, which is you want to police a community, you know, Mr. Guy? That's a great idea. Well, here's the thing to learn. Everything about the anthropology and the history of Philadelphia. You know, it's a it's a um it's a two-year course. You can communicate, you know, and at the same time, you 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 need to pass basic language lessons in Spanish and Arabic. So you in? When do I get my weapon? You know, but it seems like that kind of thing that really slows down that avidity, you know, that the sort of a bloodthirstiness that could make people want to become a cop seems, you know, potentially good. And along with that, shrinking the power of the police departments by, as you say, reprioritizing or even defunding, they seem like possibly pragmatic ways to solve that problem. You know, the thugs will stop coming to the club, to the police club, if it's not as interesting, (laughs) if they don't play as good music and they don't serve alcohol. (laughs) But even if the thugs do come, you do need some mechanism in place for holding them accountable. And that's sort of part of the problem here, which is, you know, you have very aggressive police unions, um, you know, lack of trans. One of the things that Congress is addressing in in its legislation is sort of, you know, a registry 
of you know use of force, um, you know, just making more transparent when you have wrongdoing. And Another sort of thing not, that doesn't make me as a neo-Nazi excited about coming on a police force. Knowing that the world's going to know about the, the spider web tattoos on my elbows and the fact that, you know, or, or you know, there's a cop the other day, uh, I can't remember where, I, you know, they found him with three, you know, three percenter, the white supremacist organization on his police uniform. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. yeah, and like back, getting back to the videos, how about the forensics of our fellow tweeters? Uh, they're, s- they're capable, you know. Someone will put up this cop, you know, hit my brother, and it's the blurriest picture you've ever seen. It's five pixels, and within minutes, everybody has his badge number. I mean, I have to give it up for the hive mind of these nerds that sit on Twitter all day. They're a- oh. they're really able to name and shame. Which is, you know, which is probably the most important process of 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 the video culture. Oh, Twitter is going to get you before the police will. Let's be clear. Now, there is a dark Feinberg, side to that. You do not want Ashley Feinberg looking into your, you know, <laughs> use of yeah. URLs and stuff with her her galaxy brain. Yes, you do not. Now, now, the dark side of that was I don't know if this was as much a DC local story or if it made it up to you, New York, but like um, this Bethesda cyclist, this guy on the, you know, um, oh, yeah. some kids or some teenagers putting up some things and loses it and takes his bike and rips them out of one of the women's hands and, and you know, goes around Twitter. Can you please help us find this man? And, you know, within three days, they identify three people and none of them are the guy. Now, of course, the well, maybe not, of course, but the cops did find the guy. But again, this gets back to this question of the cell phone as the threat to civil liberties yes. as much as the, you know, the the hero for civil rights or whatever. I think that is such a great point. I really do want to ask you about these particular videos, because Mm -hmm. if if some people have become cinematographers and have wielded like Christian Cooper, their camera to really great effect, and and there should almost be some kind of Pulitzer Peabody for people, for, you know, civilian amateur newsmakers. The, the category would be excellence in Karen shaming. Excellence in Karen shaming. Exactly. But Jason Johnson and um, I guess a, a, a sort of a, a pa- fellow traveler, interesting person that I talked to on, on Twitter and I've talked to for pieces, a different guy, is this guy, Dre Baldwin, a former professional basketball player. And I was trying to write something about trash talking. And he he's very, very good at analyzing conflict confrontations between people as a, as a pro basketball player. It's just his skill. And so um, I tend to show him videos and try to get his commentary on them. And he almost always disagrees with me. So the first thing he disagreed with me on is that the, the convenience store workers who called the cops on um, George Floyd, that he thought that they were sort of well within the parameters of what they were doing, that in spite of the fact that most store owners are advised to call the Secret Service on a counterfeit issue to, um, you know, bag the $20 bill and, you know, that's the thing that you want to showcase and then get the license plate of the guy. But you don't go out and send two teenage kids across the street to kind of try to get the cigarettes back. But what he's... like vigilante, like street cops. Exactly. But what he said is the margins are so low in a shop like that in Minneapolis that actually they do need to get the cigarettes back and uh, and the change back. And that the cops don't respond, much less the Secret Service. So that was his... That was his take reading them as Muslim kids in this particular mm-hmm. setting, also responding to their boss. And that that was a, a surprise to me. And then he had a reading of the Buffalo video that I want to run past you. But tell me what you think of that. 
Well, here's the thing. I could also make the argument that marijuana is a gateway drug that um, if someone has a joint in their pocket, there's a good chance that down the road, they or someone else uh, might be trafficking cocaine and runs a profound risk to their own safety and public safety and so on and so on and so on. Therefore, it behooves cops to stop everybody on the street and find out if they have a joint in their pocket. Well, my gosh, look, only young black men seem to be the ones who have these joints in their pockets. So my goodness, now we've cracked down on the problem. So, okay, fine. Yes, I'm sensitive to these people of color, these people just making it. They're probably, you know, Minneapolis are probably refugees, whatever. But, you know, who are they seeking? Who are they approaching with the most suspicion? And who are they going after? You know, so it's sort of... um, So regardless of what the stats say of the number of, uh, of apprehensions or whatever... You know, what's the rate at which young black men are being approached for something like this, even in that store? And I would guarantee it. Uh, it's, you know, th- that's not the full story. So, all right, tell me about Buffalo. Okay, so Buffalo. So I asked him about Buffalo. And I should say, since I'm all on tangents, that it was certainly occurred to me when I was thinking about the about possible bias or f- false equivalence in, in the very early days of the Trump administration, that really... It's not even so much bias, confirmation bias or unconscious bias, but almost a, a cognitive bias. You remember the Yanni Laurel? You remember the Yanni Laurel oh, uh, yes. audio yeah. to quiz? Yeah. Yep, yep. It's as though some of us look at the Buffalo video. Uh, and I don't think the George Floyd video played differently for different people. But look at some of these videos that are on the edge, even maybe the Cooper versus Cooper video, and hear Yanni. They can't even begin to hear Laurel. I think they've even just, dis- people have even, there's an ev- even a study of police brutality videos and white people disproportionately really believe that the black person was drawing a gun, you know, Mm -hmm. and even when it's slowed down and sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't, they they always call it that he's that he's holding a gun. And I think the black viewers, I should get this study right, but the black viewers see it differently. We'll see police brutality. So in some ways, I do think that there's a certain kind of cognitive uh, set of framework. And that when I saw the Buffalo video, my partner and I winced at it. I mean, all of us could identify with George Floyd because all of us have necks and windpipes that can be cut off. But looking at Martin Gugino, you know, he my dad is a liberal Catholic activist. And there was something about seeing a skinny man of that age, you know, willing to walk forward in this kind of Gandhi-like way and then get knocked down and then be knocked down and then have everyone abandon him even when the blood was visible. Please, that that just, you know, damn it, his complexion is so much like mine that it like hurt my head, you know? And Dre Baldwin, so again, played professional basketball abroad, is sort of, mm-hmm. is a v- very good at analyzing uh, confrontations uh, uh, between men, said... This white guy's entitlement made him step to a police officer. Nobody should ever do that. Second, they were riot police. They were supposed to push him back, and they didn't expect that he would fall over with a tap, right? So he sort of blames him for, you know, really getting in the way, and that, you know, ultimately they sort of came around to helping him. And we can't expect that someone, some body would be so fragile that, it, you know, talk about pre-existing conditions, basically, that if George Floyd had a cardiac problem, then this guy, by his own admission or by his, the admission of his friends, did have other health problems. So that was his take, 
where I saw it as, you know, I saw it the di- a different way. And I felt like it was a Yanny Laurel problem. But as with Yanny Laurel, I tried to tune it so I could hear both. I don't know if you did that. But um. it's a delicate operation. But I feel that Jason Johnson was able to see Amy Cooper's point of view in that. And I feel like ultimately I was kind of able to see Dre's in this particular confrontation. Oh, I can definitely uh, I can definitely see him on the entitlement point, like the okay. notion of someone willfully approaching police officers uh, is kind of a white people thing. I mean, I know, you know, you know, there's one listener, you know, your one conservative listener uh, will listen to this uh, and say, oh, no, 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 no. I see black people confronting cops all the time. These black rioters. Yeah, da, 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 da. But no, it's I mean, there's definitely an element of privilege in I can walk up to the police officers and know that everything will be just fine. It's sort of Jesus-y, right? Like, it's, it's, very, sort of... it's very, I mean, well, Jesus being a black man. Oh, yeah, um, it's a black Jesus, a totally. Black but but, um, but no, but it just so, so I guess, you know, I see that point. What I would say, though, and this gets back, so I have two more points. I think um, this is the, the power of the cell phone video, is that you're starting to see these, for lack of a better term, hear me here, these sort of perfect um, characters, Right. Um, yeah. In him and in Christian Cooper, in a way that it's easy to vilify. And, you know, George Floyd, to some extent, too, he's not up to, you know, he's not harming anybody. Right. And so the point is, you know, it would, it would have been easy in the abstract to vilify a protester, comma, an Antifa protester. And frankly, you know, that narrative would have gotten out there if we didn't see this video, um, you know, got you know tripped in front of the police or so on. But you see that he's really just a peacenik old single guy, uh, literally 75-year-old bachelor who, who likes to pick flowers, as we read in these articles, uh, who was out um, there. And you know, Christian Cooper is the same thing. Now, look, that's very dangerous to start getting into Christian Cooper is more compelling because he's a light-skinned gay black man um, who went to Harvard. Uh, and we got to be careful about that. But part of that is what got people to see the egregiousness of the conduct, right? Now, again, but, you know, but it's important for people because I also think you know, there were a few, there was some analysis in the, in the immediate aftermath, like, oh my God, how could this have happened to this kindly young um, black man who's, mm. you know, handsome and, and, and all that. Setting all that aside, one more point, you know, it's fascinating, because, you know, this is Trump cast, and we should talk about the president for a moment. Yeah, thank and, you. You know, and tying, but tying to all this and sort of his reaction to these things, and, you know, is it Yanny, is it Laurel, what do we see you know, what do you see in the Rorschach test? Uh, or, you know, the thing with the vases where do you see two faces or do you see a Oh, vase, yeah. Oh, yeah, right? vase. Yeah, um, that's another one where I've tried to see them both, just at the same yeah. time. The same, to see them both at the same time. Um, in the, to use another matter, in the magic eye um, <laughs> of uh, trying to divine Donald Trump, you know, it's, it's really interesting um, because I think the president's rhetoric right now in calling this Buffalo guy Antifa and storming the, the church and all of that. I think if the president's getting any advice right now, it's that he believes there are three white ladies in like Kenosha, Wisconsin or something who believe, you know, like you said, we can all agree that you know, it's a shame what happened to that colored boy in Minneapolis. So, you know, no, no one should have that happen to him, but I don't want rioting in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And the president is the one guy who can crack down on that. Hmm. And I think he is doubling down on that. I think he truly believes that there are white people who are, who are maybe sympathetic enough, 
but also scared and need a strong man. And that's why, you know, he's in part doubling down on this, you know, that and the fact that he's an inveterate bigot and we've learned that he's a monster too. But, you know, I think if it's a political strategy, it's, it's the, whatever it's Yanni or Laurel, it's doubling down on the Yanni side yeah. and say, this is a threat and I can protect you from this threat. Elliot is a CNN legal analyst with broad experience across all branches of government. Thank you so much for being here, Elliot. Always so much fun to be on. Uh, Let's talk again soon. Yay. That's it for today's show. What do you think of our show? Don't be silent. We can take it. We've got Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. And I beseech you, become a Slate Plus member. Today's the day. I'm not going to get too craven, but I really think it's in your interest and it's certainly in our interest. So please consider getting all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. It's only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and brilliantly engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.